you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, an interesting look at a giant lawsuit against IBM after the company reduced its workforce of thousands of older workers. A really interesting discussion today, probably for a lot of you, particularly with our aging population and the aging workforce. We all know that people are staying at work longer than they used to, longer than perhaps our parents and grandparents did. Today, more older people are staying in the labor force and working longer than they ever have before. Studies show that. And part of it is because they are physically able to. I think we all know people who are in their 60s and 70s even today who seem younger in some ways than people we knew decades ago who were in their 50s. That's just the way it is for some people. Also, people are partly staying in the workforce longer because they have to for financial reasons. They don't have the financial ability to stop work and retire because they don't have a way to basically make a living or pay for themselves. So for that combination of reasons, people are staying in the workforce longer. Another reason was given to me by an expert. He said that a lot of jobs today involve technological or thinking functions that don't have to do with strength or physical ability. So some people can stay in the workforce longer because it doesn't have anything to do with them having to um, have physical stamina or strain themselves so they can perform those jobs well into their 60s and beyond. But at the same time, there's the one dynamic of people staying in the workforce longer. There's sort of a competing dynamic with some employers trying to push them out. And that's the topic of my cover story this week. It'll be on Sunday, April 11th. There is the tech giant IBM being accused of a mass undertaking to replace thousands of older employees with what executives there called new-collar workers. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But there's, you know, sort of a fine line between what a company has the right to do in terms of keeping its workforce active and fresh, but not discriminating against people solely on the basis of age, because that's actually against the law. So for this story, I spoke to a man named Bill Timmy, who retired from the Navy as a rear admiral. But like a lot of people in the military, they still have some time left in their careers. They're still fairly young and quite qualified when they retire from the military. So he went on to a second career at IBM. And he handled a lot of military-related accounts and worked his way up to become what they call the global defense and intelligence leader. And he worked very successfully there for about 10 years until he says he got a call from his boss in January of 2017. And the boss on the other end says, well, this is not a call I really wanted to make. And Timmy says he thought, well, this is not going well. By the way, he had just turned 61 years old. 
But he said the content of the phone call was his boss was saying that, you know, there have been some cutbacks and we were hoping to escape it in our division because it's been so successful, but you're going to be getting an email shortly saying that you're going to be laid off. So the question is, was Timmy a casualty of a corporate program at IBM that was basically aimed at transforming the workforce into something younger? So let's back up a little bit and look at IBM or the history of IBM so we can understand the mentality of where the company was when these changes were being made. IBM stands for International Business Machines. And back in the day, they were America's tech leader, kind of the Microsoft of yesteryear. They did a lot of innovative things like they were known for revolutionizing the computer punched card. Maybe some of you haven't even heard of a punched card. And then it was behind the technology for the PC, the personal computer. But over time, as the years and decades went on, it kind of got to be viewed inside the industry as more of a dinosaur compared to these up-and-coming, hip, big-tech companies like Google, like Amazon. And IBM apparently came to recognize that it had developed a reputation for being an older tech company. So I spoke about all of this with an attorney named Shannon Liss Reardon, who now represents more than 500 former IBM employees. And she said that IBM had been undertaking a strategy for several years to try to systematically reduce the age of its workforce, get rid of its older employees, including a lot of people who've been with the company for decades, and replacing them with younger workers. Well, why is that a problem? Workers age 40 and over have been what's called a protected class in the workplace since the Age Discrimination in Employment Act was passed back in 1967. Well, some argue that despite that, age discrimination remains widely practiced and accepted in the workplace today, partly because it's really hard to prove, to carve out, was somebody fired or discriminated against because of their age or were there really other factors that are not protected by law? Well, at IBM, critics who looked at this said that they found an undeniable pattern, and there was a really good investigation done by the journalism group ProPublica in 2018. You can look this up by searching online for ProPublica and IBM, and ProPublica found that IBM fired more than 20,000 employees over age 40 over a six-year period, and attorney Liz Reardon says they uncovered IBM strategic planning documents. And in those documents, they specifically talked about what they called the need to refresh their workforce or rebalance their workforce and focus on what they call early professional hires. So you look at some of this terminology and you can kind of see how maybe, at least according to critics, they're dancing around using terms that make it sound like it's not age discrimination, but it's kind of getting at the same point. There was one internal IBM strategic planning document that was submitted as evidence in court. I think the attorney, Liz Reardon, told me it was accidentally released or posted temporarily, and so they captured this image, but it refers to reprofiling current talent. That's the headline. And under continuous talent refresh, it reads, focus on programs to create room for new talent to build skills for key growth areas. And then under another 
little separate headline. It says, expected outcomes, 55% early professional hires in 2020, and 10% annual talent refresh. Well, what does all of that mean? There is some help in interpreting these documents from a former top IBM executive named Catherine Rogers. And she said those phrases and those words, those are code for replacing older workers with younger ones. Her testimony is a key part of the case against IBM. She herself worked at IBM for 40 years, but was fired in that same time period around 2017. And she says it was for warning her superiors that their hiring and firing strategies basically amounted to age discrimination. She says she told them that they could be getting in trouble for the things that they were doing. IBM's stated goal at the time was to hire 25,000 people over four years. But the catch is they wanted to do that without expanding the workforce, according to Katherine Rogers, which she says implied that there was a parallel unspoken plan to reduce 25,000 older workers. And she says IBM CEO at the time coined the phrase new-collar workers, kind of a play on blue-collar workers. And I looked that up. I did a search online, and you can see that that's the case. It's a phrase that IBM still has on its website today, referring to new-collar workers. More on this case right after a short break. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The news as we once knew it no longer exists. It's become a product molded and shaped to suit the narrative. Facts that don't fit are omitted. Off-narrative people and views are controversialized or neatly deposited down the memory hole. My new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, is filled with important context regarding the death of the news as we once knew it. Pick up your copy of Slanted today. We're back talking about allegations of age discrimination in the workplace. So again, according to a former IBM executive, Catherine Rogers, she said that IBM had a goal of hiring 25,000 people over a four-year period, but doing that without expanding the workforce which she claimed implied that there was a parallel plan to reduce 25,000 older workers. And she saw practices she claimed amounted to age discrimination and then said that she was fired after 40 years for warning executives that this was a problem. Well, how do you prove that other than sheer numbers? I mean, you could look at patterns, but people who are at a later stage of their careers might be more likely to leave their jobs anyway. Does that prove there's age discrimination? So I spoke to an expert in that named Richard Johnson. Richard Johnson heads up the program on retirement policy 
at the Urban Institute, which is a research nonprofit. And I asked him whether my instincts were correct. Is age discrimination something that's very hard to prove? And he said, absolutely. And so how do you define age discrimination? He said he would define it as, are you treating somebody differently on account of their age when it doesn't reflect their productivity or the contributions that they're making or can make? And again, this is a really fine line. It's, it's a hard and nuanced area. As I pointed out in talking to Richard Johnson, you know, business might say, yeah, these happen to be older workers who have been let go because of the stage of the career that they're in. And they're also, by the way, more expensive workers. Do companies and workplaces not have the right to say, boy, this worker's costing me a lot of money and I could buy someone with less experience for a lot less money and save you know, save in operating expenses, and perhaps those people might even be more productive at a lower salary, and they might be more aggressive. So they might argue, it's not because they're older that we're letting somebody go and replacing them with somebody younger. It's just a business decision. It's how we see them as an employee. So Richard Johnson said, yeah, that's exactly what employers claim. But he says that some of that can kind of be debunked in terms of Do these older workers really cost more money? He said that a lot of older workers are actually willing to work for less pay and don't expect to get the income that they got when they were at their peak earnings. And yet still, he says, after age 50 or 55, earnings tend to fall for older workers and then they can't get hired on even at the lower wages, which he says shows there is some type of age discrimination at play. Now, according to the Urban Institute, which has done a lot of studies on this stuff, a person today who is 65 or older is 95% more likely to be working than they were, you know, the same person, the same age, 35 years ago. Again, someone 65 or older is 95% more likely to still be working today than they were 35 years ago. But on the flip side, a study of retirement trends, a study done by the Urban Institute, from 1998 to 2014, found that more than half of people working full-time in their early 50s were pushed out of their jobs before they reached age 65. Let me say that again. More than half of people, 56%, who were still working full-time in their early 50s were pushed out of their jobs before they reached what people consider a normal retirement age of 65. So back to IBM. Complaints about what they had done actually went to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the federal body EEOC, and last fall, the EEOC rejected IBM's arguments, and the commission found that 86%, about 86%, of IBM's potential layoff pool during this time period was older workers. And that, coupled with other evidence, according to the EEOC, said, quote, there is a reasonable cause to believe that IBM discriminated against the employees on account of their age. So not good for IBM. What does IBM have to say about that? Well, um, they issued a statement saying, quote, we were disappointed by the commission's preliminary findings. IBM makes decisions based on skills and the needs of its business units, not age. So IBM strictly insists that all of these decisions, kind of like I said earlier, is a common defense of companies. These are decisions made by their business units. 
They said that managers on an individual basis were making decisions on who could be laid off case by case, that they had no overarching strategy. On the other side, critics are saying that, of course, the managers understood what the strategy was and what the goal was. Well, there's one more complicating factor when it comes to getting at the bottom of all of this and a big lawsuit that's going on. The way IBM handled the layoffs or the separations further complicated attempts to sue. And actually, I remember looking back in the same time period, I have an acquaintance who was working at IBM and went through all of this stuff that was going on. And she shared with me what they were trying to get her to sign in terms of getting maybe a month's severance, but had to sign an agreement saying that you wouldn't do certain things. And sometimes the employees felt they had no choice. Maybe they weren't going to get a lot of severance, but they wanted to at least get the one month they were being offered. So they signed these agreements, many of them saying that they would have to pursue any age discrimination claims they wanted to make through a process of arbitration rather than banding together in a big, powerful global lawsuit. So again, the way IBM handled these separations of older workers made them sign something to get a little bit of severance pay that limited really the way they could challenge the terms of their separations. And the attorney, Liz Reardon, says that by focusing on each individual separation as an individual case, she claims IBM really avoids having anyone take a look at the big picture and all the people grouped together. Nonetheless, she's still trying to build a class action suit, trying to overcome these technical hurdles with hundreds of ex-IBM employees. If you want to see my report on this, you can watch for it on Full Measure, Sunday, April 11th. As far as what happened to the former Naval Rear Admiral who had worked at IBM for about 10 years before getting laid off, he's going to try to join the class action suit that I mentioned. Even though he did sign that paper, he said the separation that may have limited his options. But I asked what he had done since he left IBM, and he talked about how difficult it is to be someone in their 60s, trying to market yourself, particularly similar to a salary that you had before. Through his connections, he said he's been able to do some individual contract work, and he still says he feels like he's got more good working years left in him. He's not ready to call it a day. The former employees for IBM hope if successful in court, they can receive an eventual payout from IBM. And advocates, by the way, are pushing for Congress to step in and pass a law that bans the sort of forced arbitration I mentioned, that bans the way that IBM did those separation agreements by getting people to sign that they would go to arbitration instead of court, which again, advocates for the older workers say prevents them from banding together in a powerful way to enforce their rights in court. What else do we have coming up on this week's program? I know you all love to hear from Scott Thuman. I do too. We sent him back to a Texas town where he visited at the height of America's oil boom, not all that long ago. And I think that he was finding even barbers in these towns that were booming because of all the oil workers coming there, that even barbers were making six-figure salaries. People said they were able to come to Texas, didn't even need necessarily a high school diploma. As long as they were willing to work hard, they could get hired on and make a great six-figure salary. 
Well, what's happening now? After the coronavirus shutdowns, which limited the demand for oil, after President Biden came into office and has taken some steps that some people think um, are not going to be good for the oil industry, that whole tone and tenor of the town has changed. So Scott Thuman went back there, and he will have a story on Sunday's Full Measure to show us what it's like today. And I will have an interesting little update on a story that we first did, I think a couple of years ago. We interviewed the incredible reporter David Willman, who had done an investigation about the really bad record of the Boeing missile defense system. It turns out when the Pentagon was testing the effectiveness of this Boeing-developed missile defense system that was designed to shoot down incoming nuclear missiles, that interceptors failed to destroy their targets in six out of 11 tests, while Boeing got an incredible amount of tax dollars and bonuses nonetheless. And David Willman had found that the best available evidence showed that the Boeing system, after something like $40 billion spent on it, was not reliable and could not be depended on. Well, there's an update on that story and America's missile defense efforts, which have come into focus again recently with North Korea, maybe one of the biggest threats we see in terms of would anybody ever try to launch missiles at us? They're testing some missiles again, kind of, I guess, testing the waters with President Biden in office to see what's going to happen. But there's an update to what we're doing about our missile defense system and about Boeing's role in that. A couple of other updates I thought I would mention this week. Don't know if you heard, but the Washington, D.C. medical examiner released the official causes of death for four people, four of the five, who died the day of the January 6th Capitol riots after the pro-Trump rally. And one of the significant cases is the death of Ashley Babbitt. Ashley Babbitt is the unarmed rioter who was shot and killed as she tried to climb through a broken window at the Capitol. There were several videos posted and circulated of that very sad situation, regardless of how you view the riots. It's now been ruled officially as a homicide. The report said that she was killed by a gunshot to her shoulder. And I think one of the fascinating things about this case is I have never covered a case in my 40 years where the name of the shooter, the law enforcement officer who killed her, has been kept secret. This is something that's not possible because it's deemed to be part of public records, I think, in every state in the union. But there's an exception, it turns out, with the Capitol Police because they are not under any normal agency, federal, state, or department. They are under Congress. And as such, they have exempted themselves, or Congress has exempted themselves, and this apparently covers the U.S. Capitol Police, from having to answer Freedom of Information Act requests. And they don't have the same level of transparency and public disclosure that I have come to expect from an average police agency. They say they just typically, as a matter of policy, don't release names in a situation like this. And it seems nobody can make them, although there's a question as to whether members of Congress could, either an individual or collectively, or whether it would have to be congressional leadership, But I did talk to someone who was of the opinion that since the Capitol Police falls under Congress, they're the ones with the authority to get this information or release the information. I have confirmed with, I think, what is a good source, that there is a criminal investigation underway 
into that shooting, and that's being conducted by the Washington, D.C. Metro Police, working with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. So ultimately, I guess we're going to hear something about this case. I'm not sure why it would take months. So remember that happened January. We're already into mid-April. There are two other deaths that we heard about that day, officially now blamed on natural causes. I think we knew this. It had been in the news that two people who died had some version of a heart attack or heart disease. There was another death that was deemed to be an accidental drug overdose. And the only other outstanding death that happened that day is the poor U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. You may remember that there was so much misreporting surrounding the circumstances of his death. The New York Times and other media falsely reported early on that he died because Trump supporters hit him on the head with a fire extinguisher. Even though that very day or close to it, there were reports, I think even from the family, that he had had a stroke or some other manner of death. Somewhere along the way, it seems like the media gave up on the fire extinguisher story. I don't think anyone explained exactly how that false narrative got started. But then ultimately, I believe two men were arrested for supposedly spraying bear repellent or bear spray on Officer Brian Signick or in his direction. And so there's a thought that that may have caused or contributed to his death. But oddly, authorities won't release his autopsy report. And at least last time I checked, And the medical examiner, even though it released the official cause of death on these other deaths I mentioned, it did not release anything about Officer Brian Sicknick. So all we really have still on that officer's death is speculation. And by the way, there are other unanswered questions surrounding the January 6th riots as the FBI continues to round up hundreds of people, Um, charging them with all kinds of things, bringing some of them back to Washington, D.C., and denying them bail or asking that they not be given bail. But Senator Ron Johnson of the Homeland Security Committee, he's a Republican from Wisconsin, he's been asking questions for months and says he has not gotten really good responses or complete responses from some of those whom he has asked. And he recently in the past week posed a series of new questions such as, Please describe the security of the Capitol building at the beginning of the joint session, the one that got interrupted by the rioters. He wants to know the exact number of law enforcement officers that were manning the east and west fronts of the Capitol and the entrances and the interior. And were they fully outfitted with riot gear? Were they partially outfitted or had no protective gear? Like what was the number of each officers in those groups? How many firearms were seen or confiscated from individuals inside or near the Capitol grounds on January 6th, he's asking, because really, I think what we've all heard, or it's been implied that there were thousands and thousands of people that took part in an armed insurrection. And in fact, there may have been some weapons, but in terms of guns or mini guns, at a hearing, I did see an official say none were confiscated. So... It certainly wasn't rampant with firearms and guns, which, by the way, are generally illegal in Washington, D.C. And also, um, Johnson wants to know what groups were involved in planning or coordinating the breach. That's certainly something that officials ought to be able to answer by now. And how many members of those groups were involved in the breach versus, I guess, 
people that were kind of independent or going along. Also, um, he wanted to know, is the U.S. Capitol Police fully complying with requests for records from the Capitol Police Office of Inspector General? So that implies there is an Inspector General audit or investigation underway and that they are seeking their own answers from the Capitol Police. Now, Johnson says many of his previous questions to officials have gone unanswered. He's posed a series of questions to, for example, the Attorney General, the FBI, the Capitol Police, and others. I want to remind you that I continue with my mission of trying to bring to light stories and viewpoints and studies and interviews with people who are being censored or marginalized or controversialized in other corners of the media and social media and the internet, because I think there are well-organized efforts to limit the information landscape to benefit only those who are pulling the strings and want us to think certain things and not see certain information. If you go to CherylAckison.com, my website, you can see a tab at the very top called The Censored. And certainly this is not a comprehensive list, but when I have time, I'm updating it by highlighting censored issues, censored people, censored studies, censored films. Some of them are on the left, some of them are on the right, some of them are entirely apolitical, because I think it's important that if we draw attention to the very things that these powerful propagandists don't want us to see, then their efforts to control our information backfires on them. We can kind of make it turn around and flip it to work in our advantage. A few of the people you would find under the censored tab right now at CherylAckison.com is the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, read about that. The Stanford professor, Jay Patacharya, he had a lot to say about COVID lockdowns early on, I think has been proven correct over the past year, but a lot of people don't like that. Del Bigtree, who is with the Informed Consent Action Network. Jesse Benal, who is a Trump campaign Nevada attorney, he's been censored. Larry Elder, who has a film called Uncle Tom, which has gotten some critical acclaim and yet been censored in some corners. Um, We can look at Glenn Greenwald, the left-leaning investigative journalist who was censored actually at his own news organization, the one that he started and created. There's Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican of Missouri. There is the Democrat Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the comic strip Mallard Fillmore, the natural medicine doctor, Joseph Mercola, the Trump election integrity attorney, Cleta Mitchell, the media studies professor who teaches a lot about propaganda but then has fallen subject to it, Mark Crispin Miller at New York University, and so on. So again, you can look under the censored tab at CherylAckison.com and fight this censorship that we're seeing so much of. To watch Full Measure, where I also try to highlight underreported stories, and issues, you can find the newly updated station list also at CherylAckison.com by clicking the full measure tab. And I've listed all the stations by state. If you don't have one near you, or if it's too hard for you to find out, you can always go to fullmeasure.news now or anytime and watch replays of the segments for free from the past week's show. You can go to fullmeasure.news as well on Sundays and watch live if you like. At 9.30 Eastern Time, fullmeasure.news, it streams live. And about noon on Sundays, we post all those segments 
In case you missed it, you can just watch them at your convenience. Lots of ways to see full measure and to support independent reporting of these stories that other people are not wanting to touch or maybe are trying to only tell one side of so they can shove an opinion down your throat. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Check out my other podcast, the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, and subscribe to both the Cheryl Ackeson podcast and Full Measure After Hours. Wherever you like to listen, leave a good review and share it with your friends. Don't forget to pick up my new bestseller, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.